open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15 today. Colossians 1.15. Today is, today is Reformation Day. Um, the anniversary of the day Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, that was October 31st, 1517. So it's been 504 years since he did that. And thus the Protestant Reformation was born. Um, in the list of things that he posted, the complaints he had about the church, things that needed to be changed about the church, things that needed to be more realigned biblically, um, were, I mean, there were 95 of them, I'm not going to read them all, but just a couple of them. Um, there was the idea that in the Catholic Church that works can save us or works are an important part of our salvation and martin luther was outspoken about that that christ alone and his sacrifice alone is what saves us um the church had instituted a practice uh, allowing people to purchase indulgences because of their uh, their teaching or their belief in purgatory so they sold indulgences to raise money for the church, and they told people, if you buy these, then you can shorten the time of a loved one in purgatory where they're suffering before um, they move to their final eternal state. Um, and just the idea that the Catholic Church and its teaching was on an equal level with Scripture an equal level of authority with scripture was something that Luther was not okay with. And so he taught in his writings, he taught in his sermons, he taught in his lectures, he was a professor. He taught that Christ's sacrifice, sacrifice alone can save. You're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. Well, that's the same thing that Paul is teaching the Colossians in our text today. Um, and it's going to bleed over into our text uh, for next week as well. But this is what Paul is getting at, that Christ alone is supreme and sufficient. And it's something that I think we need to make sure we are proclaiming today in the church. So let's look at our text. Um, I did not plan this, uh, the way that this all lined up. It was actually this morning that it dawned on me that that what Luther was doing 504 years ago today is actually right in line with what we're talking about today. And I had hoped to be in this text last week, and I didn't get there in time. So another way that God has worked it out so that what we're studying in Scripture today goes right in line with what he's been doing in other times or other places in the world uh, to to teach the same thing. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand? To honor God as we read his word, starting in verse 15. He, that's Jesus, because the verse before, two verses before, Paul is referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or might have the supremacy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth that we see in the text today. We thank you that it has been something that has um, caused men from the time of Paul and the other apostles down through the history of the church. It has caused people to, uh, to stand on this truth when it is being threatened or when it is being rivaled by someone or something that um, tries to have more authority or tries to force people into submission. There is a, a part of me, God, that is very thankful that one of the things that Martin Luther wanted to do was also to translate the scriptures out of Latin into the German language so the common people could read it. And because of him and people like William Tyndale and other people in the history of the church who have who have understood that people need to be able to read your word in their language where the, that they understand it in, that it's clear. That's allowed us, God, to be students of your word and to know you more intimately. And as we study today, may we come to an intimate understanding of your supremacy and your sufficiency in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so Paul uses this portion of the letter here to describe basically who Christ is. Um, there's a phrase that I just want to draw your attention to if you're somebody who likes noting these things. The phrase, he is, Paul uses the phrase, he is, four times. And each time in this short text that he uses that, he describes numerous things about Jesus. This is something that uh, in the early church, it might have already been, by the time Paul penned it, it might have already been something that was kind of used as a teaching tool, maybe a hymn that had been written in the church. Um, but if it wasn't already, it certainly became that after Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. And so there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of information. It's a very rich part of the, the scriptures. Um, people write entire books or series of books just on some of the things that we're going to be reading through this morning. So I don't have the time to be able to take all the angles that could be possibly taken. Um, but the main idea, the, the dominant thought throughout this text is that Christ is supreme. And so your first point in your notes is that Christ is supreme in creation. We're going to look at a, um, a couple of ways that we see in our text that he is supreme. And the first one is that he's supreme in creation. 
Now, under this heading, there are three things that we're going to walk through to show that he is supreme um, in creation. And the first thing is that uh, these are, I think, worthy of noting because they kind of help break the text up. First is that Paul has established that Christ is supreme, like just the fact that he is supreme in verse 15. Verse 15, we're going to break down just a little bit so that we can see that this is kind of the heading. This is kind of how Paul is going to use, uh, he's going to use this verse 15 to lead into all the stuff that he's going to really go in depth with the rest of the passage. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Now, we know that Christ is fully God and fully man. And so when he came, when he came in the form of a man and he walked with people and he talked with them and taught them, um, we were able to see what we know today is God's fullest revelation of himself. God has revealed himself over the course of time with his people and given them, as time goes on, given them more information, given them a better understanding of who he is. But by the time Christ comes, we have God himself in the flesh with us. And so we're able to see on a, on a greater level and in a greater depth the very character of God in Christ because he is God. Now, Paul says he's the image of, of God who is invisible. He's the physical image um, in the way, in the fact that he was incarnate, but he is all, all of him, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, all of him is an image of, of God who is invisible. And so as I was studying this, um, I was started asking myself, what, is there some kind of a connection? What, or what is the connection between Christ, who is the image of God, and humans who are made in the image of God? Because we hear that image language a lot throughout Scripture. We hear it a lot in life because we are image bearers. So what is the connection between the fact that Christ is the image of God, and we are people who are made in the image of God? And and here's what I think we need to at least note for our purposes today. God created Adam and Eve, and he made them in his, in his image. That's Genesis chapter 1. It says that he, he was going to make people in his image. And when he made them, and there was no sin in the world, they were, a, they were as much of a reflection as, as a physical person person could be of God's glory. But when they sinned and the fall came and the world and all of the universe was corrupt and, and now decaying and now human beings are fallen, we, they pass on a fallen nature to all of us. When that took place, mankind lost something of the image of God. I'm not saying that they lost the image of God completely, but there was an element of the image of God that we lost because we went from being the way God intended us to be to being people who had marred that image, who had lost part of that glory because of our sin. Christ came not only to be a revelation of who God the Father is, 
but he came to redeem us through his sacrifice. And when he did that, one of the things he accomplished was to restore to us the lost image of God in mankind. And so Christ is the image of God. He came on behalf of those who were created in the image of God and needed that to be restored to what it was was intended to be. Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. And some people in some people have used this particular verse to argue the point, and this has been something that's been going on for centuries. This is something that was dealt with at one of the church councils centuries ago, and people are still holding to this today in certain circles. But people have used this to argue that Christ was not uh, etern- did not exist for eternity past, that he wasn't part of the Godhead prior to creation, but that Christ was the first of all creation, and therefore the greatest of all creation, but that he is a created being, that he had a beginning. And Paul is not referring to that in any way because the firstborn refers to um, a, a, a father's heir, which was always given to the first son born to someone in that culture. And so the firstborn here of all creation refers to Jesus as, God, as being uh, that, having that role. He is the heir of God the Father and all, cre- and, and all of creation is his inheritance. And so Christ is God the Father's heir. And some unknown day in the future, at some point, he will appear again to take his full inheritance. And the church will share in that inheritance with him. And that's, Paul discusses this a little later in the, in the letter in um, Colossians 3, 4. Um, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. You can flip probably one page in your Bible and follow along if you want. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul is referring to that time when Christ is going to return and take his inheritance, and we're going to be part of that. We're going to share in that inheritance with him. And so Paul establishes, before he gets into any real depth, he establishes that Christ is supreme by this one sentence that he writes. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The second thing that we need to look at and note as we're looking at how Christ is supreme in creation is that Christ created everything and therefore anything created owes its existence and its allegiance to him. Everything. He created everything, and so everything owes its existence and its allegiance to him, not just people. In the world of the Colossians, many lived in fear of things that were known or thought to have the power to discipline or to punish or to harm. And so there was, there was all kinds of uh, religious practices or things that people would do, maybe suspicions that they held or whatever it might be, but there was there was a lot of fear in the world in in this time of what the gods might do or whatever. And so um they they feared that 
uh, if they didn't live their life the way that, you know, like a perfect life, the way that they were supposed to, that there would be some kind of punishment that would come. And that might be from the gods that they worshipped, or they might have even feared human authorities. Um, the, you know, they, they were part of the Roman Empire. And if you slipped up, and you broke one of the one of the laws of the Roman Empire. You know, Caesar wasn't exactly Andy Griffith. The Roman Empire wasn't exactly Mayberry. If you were, if they suspected that you opposed Caesar or that you did something in opposition to him or his laws, they tended to um, they tended to exact some kind of punishment, cruel punishment, and then they would inv- investigate later to find out if you really did it. And so they, they, Pax Romana, Roman peace was something that they, they did not mess around with. If there was anything that, that made the government or the, the Roman authorities think that you were going to disrupt peace in the Roman Empire, they would put a, an end to it immediately, and they wouldn't worry about whether or not they were in the right. They would put a stop to it immediately. So there was a lot of reason to fear or be concerned about those, whether human or spiritual authorities that could impose some kind of discipline or harm to you. And so what Paul is reminding them is that all of those things, anything that you and I or they could have feared in life, all of those things are subject to Christ. All of those things, powers or authorities, They're dependent upon Christ as creator and as sustainer, and they have to submit to him. So Paul gives a list of the things that one may fear because they carry authority. Things like, um, you know, whether they're physical or spiritual things. He says things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and That word invisible, he's now used it twice in two sentences, two verses. And so he's saying anything that's visible in terms of what you can see or even things that are on the spiritual realm. Things that you might look to and think that they have power that are on the spiritual realm, power to enforce things on earth. So whether things in heaven on earth, uh, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all of those things must submit to the one who has authority over them, and that's Christ. Now let's consider this for our world today. Um, Concerning the physical realm, there's reason to be concerned about our future. Christians in countries around the world are increasingly being persecuted. Christians in America are watching, I think, in real time, pressure from society to abandon foundational doctrines of a faith in order to not be canceled or to have your career destroyed. You know, And some of that pressure is not directly from, the, from society onto the church. Some of it is going through different channels, like putting pressure on the government to put pressure on us. Um, there is... I, I mean, I've shared with you before, I believe Christians are being being persecuted. I think it's increasing in America. I think it's going to continue to increase because I think we can look at the pattern. Churches are feeling that pressure to adopt society's norms, and the result is a body of Christ that, like, there are churches that I can look at and I can say that 
doesn't even look like Christ. That looks just like the world. That's the physical realm that we deal with today. But let's also look at the spiritual realm that we might be dealing with today. Today is not only Reformation Day, today is also Halloween, right? Halloween has moved into the top five holidays in America in terms of consumer spending, so it's become a big deal now. Um, The American culture, I think, has become obsessed with Halloween and the spirits of darkness, with things like ghost hunting. If you watch TV, there's stuff all over TV about people who are like hunting and trying to locate ghosts and communicating with the dead. And I think in general, I think flirting with the demonic. That's something that I think has become an obsession in American culture. Um, I talked with a guy, I talked with a guy, uh, this was maybe a couple of years ago, and one of he found out I was a pastor and he wanted to I think make a connection with me and so he shared with me that he also is somebody who's very uh very concerned and involved with like the fact that there is a spiritual realm and then he went on to tell me how much alike we are because he ghost hunts so uh it's it's not just on tv like I met a guy not too long ago that does this and so it's just it i i think there's this idea in the american culture that um like there's there's something fascinating about it it's the unknown um but i think it's on on the verge of flirting with the demonic realm and this of course you know is dangerous territory to venture into but it shows at least that there's an acknowledgement on the part of people, many Americans at least, that there is actually a spiritual realm that is unseen, that where there is activity taking place. It's kind of a scary reality, um, some of the things that people get into. But we, however, according to what we know from Scripture, what Paul is teaching here, we don't need to fear any of those things. You know, he he's writing this because... He's writing these things because it, would, it was a common thing that people fear this, but he's telling them, we don't need to fear those things. We can know with absolute certainty, and we can be, and, and he's speaking to them with absolute clarity here, that all things, no matter their authority in whatever realm they exist, all things are created, and therefore they must submit to Christ. He is supreme. In the Colossian church, was was no different than any other church in the existence of the church. It didn't exist in a vacuum. It was affected by its culture, and it too had pressure from the pagan culture around it that was trying to get it to conform to other doctrines or principles, which is why Paul is writing the letter. And he assures them all authority is totally dependent upon Christ. If you remember when Christ was before Pilate, he was... Pilate had brought him in. He's trying to figure out why these people wanted him dead. And they were so desperate to put him to death. And Pilate's asking him questions. And at one point, Jesus refuses to answer Pilate's question. And Pilate says to him, do do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? 
And Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Pilate, who, he's not Caesar, he's not the most important person or most powerful person in the world at the time, but he had a lot of power. And he was put in a place where he was encouraged to just put down rebellion instantly. And Pilate threatens Jesus with his power, and Jesus says, you only have power over me because my father has allowed it. My father has given it to you because Jesus is supreme. So Paul explains to the Colossians that all things are created by and for Christ. He says in the text, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. They were created by him, which means they belong to him, and they were created for him, which means they are restricted in their power and must obey or submit to Jesus. Jesus is supreme. So these things, Paul says, have no power over Christ. They can't influence him. So if the Colossians or the people in their culture are worshiping other gods or worshiping the stars or they're praying to their false gods or even as some religions today might teach, praying to deceased people, deceased saints, these things have absolutely no influence over Christ. For he's Lord over all things seen and unseen. So that's number two, the second thing, that everything created was created by him and they owe their existence and allegiance to him. Number three, third thing in this part of the text, all creation is sustained by Christ. All creation is sustained by him. So Paul goes on and he says in verse um, in verse 6, in 16, he says, the rulers and dominions and authorities, they all submit to him. All things are created through him and for him. And then verse 17, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in him. All of creation depends upon him to keep it running according to the order with which God designed it. So Christ is the one who keeps everything going. He not only is the one who spoke it into existence, but he is also the one who sustains it. And as the one to whom all creation belongs and the one who sustains all of creation, that means when all creation was corrupted in the fall, the one who designed it, created it, and sustains it to its end purpose is the only one who can redeem it. So God has declared that Christ redeemed all creation at the cross. Not only does he sustain it, but he has now redeemed it, bought it back with his blood. The corruption that had come upon the world when Adam and Eve sinned and the decaying process that the world has been experiencing since that point was interrupted on the cross briefly because according to verse 19, which we'll get into next week, but according to verse 19... It was through Christ's sacrifice that God redeemed all things, all things, not just people, all things unto himself. 
And we read the result of that restoration of creation in places like Isaiah 11 and Romans 8 and Revelation 21. I'll say those again if you're taking notes. Isaiah 11. Romans 8 and Revelation 21. Those are the places we see the result of the restoration that was is possible because of the cross. So, point number one, Christ is supreme in creation. Point number two in your notes, and this one's not as long, so don't fear. It comes from verse 18, Christ is supreme in the new creation, the church. Christ is supreme in the new creation. Colossians 1.18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So here, this verse is where Paul kind of takes everything that he's been teaching and he wraps it up again into this this little phrase, so that he might have the supremacy. So that obviously means this is the reason, this is the purpose. So everything that Paul's been saying, that he has authority over all, all things, whether seen or unseen, powers, thrones, no matter what it is, he has authority all over those, all over those things. And he has authority over the church. He says he's the head, the body of the church, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that the reason for all of that stuff that I've just said is so that he would have supremacy. If Christ is supreme over and sustains all of the created order, then he is certainly supreme over and capable to sustain his church, and even more, a small church in the city of Colossae. And for us today, he's able to sustain a small church in the city of Metamora. Now, people today, you may have people who have said this to you, you may, have, you may know people that have had people say this to them, but... People today will say that you only hold on to the idea of a God because you're weak, because we as Christians, we just can't handle the stress of the world. We can't handle all the wickedness that goes on around us with the homicide rates that go on in cities like Peoria, Chicago, New York City, L.A., whatever, whatever that might be we can't handle the things that are just that press down on you in life and so since you're weak you create this idea there is no god but you come up with this idea that there's a god and that he's watching over you and that when you die he promises that you can go to heaven and so that makes it easier for you to get through this life They'll say things like, your Christian belief is not based on science. It's not based in reality. You can't prove it. It gets you nowhere. And it isn't sufficient to help you in life. Because things like science, you know, science is the one that rules. Or science is the one that has the final say. Or they'll say, or they'll 
maybe pose that, that challenge to you. Show me the science behind your Christian belief. And Paul would say to those who hear those things that those are lies of the world. That those are lies that the world throws at you. I would say, as a wise man once told us, don't let the turkeys get you down. Those people that, those people who don't understand faith in Christ because they have not come to understand the truth, they will do whatever they can to, to try to devalue your faith in him. But Jesus is the head uh, of his church. He's the beginning and the first for, firstborn from among the dead, and he has supremacy over all things, but he is certainly supreme in his church. He's the one who shed his blood and who willingly laid down his life for sinful man, not just us, but even the ones that are critical of us, even the ones that want to tell us that we don't have any basis for what we believe. He laid down his life for sinful man, and to those who would receive him, he is supreme. His word is truth. His word governs our life, whether or not others believe it. Those who've received his grace are redeemed by his blood and brought into the covenant with him in the church. He is the head. The church is his body. He is supreme in the church, the new creation. And Paul Finally, in our text today, finally, he says that he is the first to be resurrected from the dead. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now that Christ has been resurrected, that cha that's a game changer. If Christ hadn't been resurrected, he would have just been another person who was condemned and put to death. Now that he's resurrected, Everything that was prophesied about him has to be concluded to be true. So Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, calls him the author of life. John fourteen six, where Jesus is speaking to the people, he says, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who... Because he resurrected from the dead, because he was the first to do it, he has now paved a way for you and I to be resurrected from the death that we've experienced uh, because of sin. He's now brought life to us. He's able to give new life in the spirit to those in the church who surrender to him. Those who have surrendered to him share in his, not only his inheritance that we talked about in the first point, but also share in his resurrection. In Philippians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says, I want to know uh, him and the power of his resurrection and share I want to, that I may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. So he's the firstborn, sorry, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that you and I can have life, so that he would be supreme and Christ is supreme in his church. All right, so um, our text, this is not exactly where I would have liked to have stopped, but because of time, I'm going to stop there. But it really continues on into what we're going to get into next week where we're going to talk about his sufficiency. Today we talked about his supremacy. Tomorrow we're going to talk about his sufficiency, or next week we're going to talk about his sufficiency to be able to serve in that role. But... As we wrap up here, I just want to say this. This is, what, this is what Paul preached. The Colossians needed to hear this. They needed to know that all these things that might be uh, weighing on them, that they might think there's something more out there that I have to do or there's something more out there that I need to please, someone I need to please. There's, there's more to be done because I, we didn't get the gospel in its fullness. Paul preached this to say Christ is supreme in your life. Later on down the road, Luther preached the same thing. Christ alone is supreme and able to give you new life and a promise of eternal life in heaven. And that's what we need to proclaim today. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, I am thankful for this text. This is so theologically rich. Um, And I just scratched the surface on the things that we could get into if we were to have unlimited time to just sit down and discuss and study. Um, But it's important for us to understand in a time when there is much of syncretism that's taking place in the church. Churches are taking Christian doctrine that are essential doctrines to the faith, but they're mixing them with philosophies of the world, or they're mixing them with doctrines of other religions, and they're coming up with something that is different, that is does, is, is not a picture of who you are. It is not in line with your word. And the Colossians were being threatened with the same thing, It's the same thing that Luther was dealing with and John Huss a hundred years before him and other people who have been faithful servants in your church throughout its history. It will be something that we will probably deal with until Christ returns. So help us, Lord, to be straight in our doctrine and in our theology and in our mindset that may be aligned with your word and your word be supreme in our life as Christ is supreme and he's revealed himself in in your word and may we be people who live like that may our lives demonstrate that no one and no thing has authority in our lives over Christ that he is absolute supreme In Jesus' name, amen.